Welcome to Government Enabled, a podcast created to explore some of the biggest workforce challenges faced by federal and state agencies today. In each episode, we'll feature insights from industry experts who are helping the government improve their workforce operations and make better data-driven decisions. Join us as we explore federal subject matter expertise and innovative technology in supporting the mission of government agencies. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an episode of Government Enabled Podcast. I'm your host, Cheryl Mitchell. Today, we're happy to welcome Abby Cooper to the show. Abby is the owner at Kennedy Douglas Consulting. Abby, thanks for joining me today. Sure. So Abby, can you tell us about some of your past experiences and what your day-to-day project work is like right now? Sure. First, I want to say thank you for having me. And my past experiences is that I have been involved with competitive integrated employment my entire career. I started the first supported employment agency in the state of Washington. I've worked as a statewide administrator for vocational rehabilitation, focusing on business relations, benefits planning, and at the time, WIOA. Currently, I am a subject matter expert for ECOM's contract with Department of Labor that encompasses voice, neon, and rice. I do a lot. Yeah, some days. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess the project that I'm most excited about that I just want to put a plug in here is I just co-authored an employer's guide on inclusion. And that was an incredible experience in terms of learning what employers needed to know. So that was a really fun project. Well, thanks for bringing that up. What are some of the challenges that we're seeing with employing individuals with disabilities? You know, it struck me when I was doing the guy, and it has always struck me as super weird. We have basically in our country one in four individuals that are disabled. And yet we have such problems employing people with disabilities. Also, one other thing that I is mind-boggling to me, you know, it's the American Institute for Research came out with a study that in terms of disposable income from individuals with disabilities, it's $21 billion in our country, and it's a forgotten market. It's not targeted. And the reason I bring this up is the only thing that I can figure out is it's related to our biases and our assumptions about people with disabilities. I think lots of times people have incredible difficulty seeing the person. They just see the disability. And then, you know, Sherm came out with a study that also blew me away. With 81% of the HR, and excuse me, Sherm is the Society for, now i got to remember, Society, <laughs> Society for, for Human Resource Management, that 81% of personnel staff view disability only as a physical disability. And if you start realizing that 70% of people with disabilities have hidden disabilities, mm-hmm. that's like an incredibly unfortunate way to think of things. So I think there's the assumptions, and I think we reinforce those assumptions rather than analyzing them and teasing out the facts and figuring out what your assumptions are versus the reality. I think frequently businesses do not use the huge network in the disability community to test their assumptions and to give them accurate information. Frequently, it's a separate world that people don't want to think about, which, which in my opinion, is a huge, huge barrier. And then their second challenge is onboarding process for bringing people on and promoting people 
is riddled with problems. It's riddled with accessibility. It's riddled with interviewers not understanding the questions they can and cannot ask. And it also goes back to the biases I talked about earlier. And it's also how we reach out to the disability community. We do not post our jobs on disability-friendly websites. You know, there's lots. Mm -hmm. There's recruit disabilities. There's ability links. There's tons of resources out there for HR to post their jobs. And it's interesting. And one good thing I think about COVID, <laughs> if there's anything good about it, is that it forces us to rethink about how work is done. And it forces us, rather than thinking of the whole gestalt of work, but to start thinking what tasks are essential within a given job. If I want this outcome, what are the essential tasks I need to have accomplished? That opens the door for individuals with disabilities because they may not be able to do the whole process, but they can be incredibly good at the tasks that need to be done to accomplish the goal you want. Since you brought up COVID-19, how has the situation impacted this challenge? How long you got? <laughs> I think COVID-19 has impacted the challenge in numerous ways. If we start with an individual with disabilities or many persons with disability prior to COVID were somewhat isolated. Now with COVID, they're even frequently, they're even more isolated because some folks have additional conditions which makes them more vulnerable. I think that what at least what I've seen is many people that were employed prior to COVID, when the employer called people back, they forgot about the individuals with disabilities. I also think COVID has highlighted how we as a society need to be a lot sharper on our virtual skills. And our funding sources need to pay for virtual support for job seekers with disabilities. And some of those folks, you know, there's a, there's a huge divide, a huge technological divide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're poor and you're on public benefits, there's a good chance maybe you have a smartphone, but you may not have a laptop. You may not have a computer. And so then communicating virtually gets a little trickier, particularly when interviews are virtual. You know, I think it was Rutgers that just came out with a great tool, and that is supporting your customers virtually. And it went through all the different platforms and avenues somebody can access. And I think we need to focus somewhat on that for folks with disabilities, because a lot of people ha could work from home, but they're not even thought about in terms of that. In terms of funding sources, if we look at local and state governments, what are some of the challenges that they face? Oh, they're nothing. They're easy peasy. <laughs> <laughs> they have an incredible amount of challenges. There's a lack of funding. And we know with COVID, states are struggling. They're losing money. So there's a lack of funding. There's also difficulty on the state and federal level of how we braid funds together. So if you have less money, how do we share it? And how do we say, you pay for this, I pay for that, and you braid it together so that there can be enough money to do the services you need? They also, states have, you know, WIOA, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, tried to correct this, but this is something states are still working on, and that's having really strong memorandums of understanding not memorandums of understanding that basically say, we'll play nice. 
but really delineate how much money you're bringing to the table, what you're going to do, and how that aligns with what the other state agencies are doing. There doesn't seem to be in most states are really an overall gestalt in terms of how we're going to move forward and how we're all a piece of a puzzle. It's still, we're all like little separate entities that do our things. And when we have to collaborate, we do, but we don't like it so much. So I think that's one of the challenges. I think that is a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, once again, WIOA required states to have a comprehensive data system that's expensive. And states are still struggling with that. But just think about it. If they had a comprehensive data system, how that could help states move forward, how it could really help them think about where's the overlap, where are the holes, where do we need the innovation? And then, you know, there's also both states and local governments sometimes don't have comprehensive email systems. I know that sounds dumb, but they some, you know, I just read (laughs) in 2020. (laughs) Yeah. I just read about Arizona. Arizona had 16 different email systems within state government. That meant that people couldn't collaborate in real time and they were losing all kinds of productivity. What they did last year was they moved to Google G Suite Mm -hmm. and it enhanced security. It enhanced scalability and it allowed them an ease of actually communicating in real time. I think states need to think about that because I don't think the virtual world's going away. So they really need to think about how do we make it easier for our workers? I think another thing that states struggle with, and so does private business, as the world moves more virtual, how do you keep that connection with your employees? How do you keep that connections with your supervisor? How do you create that feeling we're all in it together? So that's, I think, another issue. And I also think there's an issue or challenge for states is that the lack of consistent messages around employment. And what I mean by that is, well, one, there isn't one. <laughs> but beyond that, you know, when we overpass, it basically said that transition age students with disabilities could not go to sheltered workshops. The way, but it didn't say anything about day had. So the way some states dealt with it was a whole lot of focus, more significant disabilities went into day had. And then, mm-hmm. then the fee schedule, I as a provider in some states can make more money having a day had that keeps people isolated than placing somebody in competitive integrated employment. So kind of looking at what the message is, I think is important and also looking at the message across services, because in reality, this is something we need to look at, not only for folks with disabilities, but for all members of a particular state. How do we help them move forward and advance and competitive in employment? How do we make people self-sufficient? What are the new innovative ideas we need to do? And given your background with working with state agencies and service providers and individuals with disabilities, how do you think employment's going to change post-COVID? Well, I don't have a magic wand, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think there's going to be a lot of haves and have-nots if we don't pay attention now. If we don't pay attention to what the trends are, what the education people need, what's the support, how do we utilize internships, how do we utilize apprenticeships, on the job training, we're going to have a lot of people that are not going to have the skills they need, whether they have a disability or not, to compete in our world. You know, I just sourced 
not a study, but this tool from Brookings Institute, which looked at a vulnerable job in each area of the country. And we know vulnerable jobs are going to go away. We already see that. And we already know that a lot of people who are low income, who have disability, work vulnerable jobs. And if Mm -hmm. we don't start putting some innovative projects in now for people where they get the technical skills they need, they get the critical thinking skills they need, they're going to be close out of the market. And they'll be isolated. They'll be isolated. They'll be closed out of the market. And not only that, to be a cynical person, that's going to be more cost to the state. Mm-hmm. That's going to be more cost on public benefits. And we know that right now where we are in public benefits is an issue. But we're not kind of thinking about how do we make people self-sufficient and what skills do they need to decrease the reliance on public benefits. How do you think the public and private sector could partner to expand employment opportunities for people with disabilities? Do you have any ideas on that? I would hope, as within state government, you know, the need for better collaboration between agencies, there's a need for better collaboration with private sector. You know, with employment, we are all in this together. We all think arise together. So there's the need, you know, I think it's 36 states now that have the program of state as a model employer where state agencies look to increase the number of individuals they have with disabilities employed in their workforce. I think there's only one of the 36 states that actually partners with same with the private sector. And I think that's a little bit ridiculous. I think if I was ruler of the world, you would have a governor's task force that would bring in your big industry, bring in some of your small industry, and bring in state government. And basically, okay, kids, <laughs> let's come up with a strategic plan over the next five years of how the state of Washington, because that's where I particularly live, the state of Washington is going to increase employment for individuals with disabilities by 25%. What is each of the industries going to do? What is the state government going to do? In order to do that, what funding is required? What can the state bring to the table? What can private industry bring to the table? And this is the advantages because everybody always wants to know what's in it for them. Exactly. And, and there's really true strong advantages in inclusion. You know, lots of studies have come out how inclusion improves the market value of a company how it includes retention. And if we talk about retention, my goodness, retention is a $6 billion problem nationwide, yearly for businesses and state government because of the amount of people they lose. So inclusion increases retention. Inclusion increases your market edge. Inclusion gives you really good employees. And one thing that I think is forgotten about folks with disabilities, sometimes I think because there's a lot of labeling, If you've gone through our world for your entire life with a disability, you have to be a great problem solver Mm -hmm. because there's so many issues that confront you and you've got to figure out how do I maneuver through life. So you got great innovative people that are not being utilized. So inclusion, I think, is the reason state would do it. I also think states can and should have, I think I'm going to mess up, I think it's Milwaukee that had a pre-apprenticeship program. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they sought businesses. So they weren't part of the federal 
apprenticeship program, but they set up apprenticeships for high school kids within local businesses, which I thought was a great idea. I think states and private sector need to increase the amount of apprenticeships they have, the amount of internships they have, the amount of on-the-job training funds, and it only makes sense for them because that creates a talent pool for them to move forward on. A pipeline. Yes. To address future workforce recruitment needs, do you have any recommendations in terms of next steps from the employer perspective? I mean, besides the apprenticeships, that pipeline? Yeah, I do. I think one... HR in the last decade, if you look at all the research in the last decade, has kind of been cut out of the loop. They've been, and everybody loves to hate HR. And I'm sorry to anybody who's from HR on this line, but it's true. And they have, many companies have forgotten what an incredible tool HR can be. They should be at the table when strategic plans are being made. They should be at the table as you start looking at trends. So you can, employment trends, so you can start backing out, okay, this is the employment trend, and we assume this is going to happen over the next five years. What does our workforce need to look like? And where do we recruit those folks from? And what schools do we partner with? And what community organizations do we partner with to ensure that we have the individuals we need? So I think, you know, there's a bringing HR in a lot higher level. I think there's a need for companies to, and I know that this is tough because everybody has a million and one things to do. But with COVID, I think it highlights the need to really think about how we do work. And really think about what portion of our workforce can work virtually. And if they work virtually, what took and change do I save in doing that? And how can that go to other innovative projects? I could use that money. So I think there needs to be a really careful landscape analysis of where the business is, where they want to go, what needs to change in terms of what they're doing now, what needs to change in their hiring process, what needs to change in their knowledge base, and what needs to change in how they support employees. Because if you look at these younger generations coming up, you know, they want employment to work for them. And all of the studies you see say that. That means we have to change how we think about employment. And we have to start thinking about how we customize employment more to our employees' needs if we want them to hang around. How can the disability community help employers? Oh, well, you know, they've got tons of magic for employers. (laughs) 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 They can help the employer community in a multitude of ways. One you have, as I already mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned, I thought I did. You know, I think it's only 33% of employees receive training on disability law. That means there's massive confusion around what a reasonable accommodation is, how you provide it, where to get the information. And employers make tons and tons of mistakes with reasonable accommodation. And unfortunately, sometimes they're super expensive because they end up in court. The disability community can help you as the experts coming in and looking at what is a reasonable accommodation, you know, and how you can provide it. There are great programs. You know, there's JAN, which is Job Accommodation Network. There's Return to Work, Stay at Work, Return to Work, that is really expert on realigning a work environment for somebody who's been injured after they obtained work. You know, there's a lot of resources there that 
it would behoove an employer to reach out. There's a division of vocational rehabilitation. There's a division of blind. It's endless in terms of the amount. So one way they can help is reach out and use their expertise. I think there's another tool that I'm a huge fan of that the disability community developed about 10 years ago. And it kind of aligns with the concept that some large companies are using, which is called job sculpting. And job sculpting has been around for I think it got hot about 15 years ago, or as hot as the employment concept gets. <laughs> but it looks at the whole person, and it looks at the person's skills, and it says, okay, how do we utilize those skills so you get value from your job? And because we all know people will take a job because they like to pay, but they'll leave a job because they don't feel valued. And we've already talked about how expensive it is for people to leave. Well, the disability community came up with this idea of an employer's needs analysis, which isn't that dissimilar from the lean process. But what it does is it divides the workflow into tasks. And it looks like how they can be aligned more correctly for the job to be more efficient and to meet the employer's bottom line. I've been thinking a lot about this since COVID because basically, particularly small businesses, that's what they're having to do right now to survive. It's like, I've got to rethink this. I can only let so many people in my business. I can only have so many employees. How should work be aligned so I can still make a profit and it's efficient? So I think the whole concept of a benefits needs analysis is one that would be incredibly useful. You know, I've done it with really large businesses and I've done it with really small businesses. And it's an incredibly useful tool. I also think the disability community and, you know, within WIOA, it allows for the division of vocational rehabilitation to customize training at no cost to employers to provide training to employers either on retaining an employee or hiring an employee with disabilities. So, you know, you have businesses that are nervous about employing people with disabilities. Frequently, they're nervous because they don't understand the ADA or they're nervous because coworkers won't like it because they're not sure how to act. The Division of Vocational Rehabilitation can provide customized training on employee etiquette, on assistive technology, on accommodations. That's a huge advantage. You also have providers in every state that are willing to work with employers to meet their employer employment needs. So it's always been a little confusing to me that employers don't think the disability community is the best thing since toast because they have so much to offer. And many businesses, particularly now, don't have time. What do you recommend for state agencies who are struggling to improve employment? How can we change the narrative? Well, I think a couple different things. I think I said this earlier, but I like to repeat myself. I think we've got to develop a consistent message. And there are efforts with employment first. The trouble with employment first, and I know I'll probably be shot for saying this, but the trouble with employment first, it, it's focused and there's a huge need to focus on folks with more significant disabilities, but there's a whole population out there who's not getting employed, who do not have a significant disability. So I think there needs to be a consistent message across states around 
within state government around employing folks with disabilities, that every person in the United States, if they want to work, they should have employment. And as a public official, it's my responsibility to figure it out. So I think that's one, a consistent message that proclaims the importance of employment for everyone. Because there's lots of people without disabilities who are unemployed right now, too. It's an issue where we need a consistent message on. I think that some of the things I already mentioned that I think states can do is I think they can really spruce up or they can develop apprenticeship programs. They can develop paid internships for people. And the other thing that I was thinking about, you know, years ago, individual development were really hot and really everybody thought it was the cure-all. And an individual development account is where a person saves money in a savings account and then it's matched by up to $3 and they can save for self-employment, they can say for home ownership and our education. And I was thinking this morning, what if states did match savings accounts to say for employment, to say for many people, particularly in rural areas, struggle to even get to the job because they can't drive or they don't own an automobile. So can excessive transportation be part of an IDA that would allow somebody to obtain employment? Can states create an IDA where a person could say in order to get an individual type of education or that isn't a four-year degree or isn't through a community college? I think we need to, states also need to kind of play with things to say, how can we do this different? I also think states need to think about what they fund and what their fee schedule is or what their reimbursement schedule is to ensure they're reimbursing for what they want. Does employment get reimbursed at the highest level from state government? Do promotions get reimbursed? Obtaining a job where you earn 20 bucks an hour, do you get more as a provider, if I find you, Cheryl, the job for 20 bucks an hour, do I get reimbursed at a higher rate than if I found you a job for nine fifty an hour? Exactly. Yeah. There should be built-in incentives. There's got to be built-in incentives. And I know that's not popular in a time when everybody's wringing their hands about how do we survive. But I guarantee we're not going to survive if we don't start thinking about some new innovative approaches. Okay, so we're getting close to our time here. So let's close up with a few questions to give our audience some tips. Let's start with your favorite resources. What's your favorite online resource that you rely upon to keep up to speed on what's happening with government technology, the government HR, or another key industry topic? I like govtech.com. That kind of gives a good overview of what's happening in the government around technology. I also like HR Drive Talent, which gives me a good idea of what's happening and what HR is thinking about. I also like Workforce GPS, because once again, that lets me know what's happening in different states and what cool things are happening. And then I also tend to look at Brookings Institute and see what studies they're coming out with. And I also look at, who else? That's disability, a lot of topics. <laughs> disability Scoop. I think those are usually, I mean, I look at a lot of stuff, but those are ones that I go to a lot. And lastly, where can our audience go to learn more about you? Well, they can email me, and my email is Cooper at gmail.com. They can look at my online profile on LinkedIn, which will soon be improved. So those would be two places. I'm also a consultant for Mark Golden Associates. And so there's information on Mark Golden Associates website. 
Thank you, Abby. Thanks for joining us today on Government Enabled. Well, thank you very much. Government Enabled is brought to you by EconSys, an organization that helps power federal and state governments with exceptional workforces. If you're a public sector leader looking to get the most out of your people, then subscribe to the Government Enabled podcast on all major platforms. And check out all archived episodes at econsys.com. Thanks for listening.